My name's Anne Booth. Uh, I teach uh, at SOAS in the economics department there. I have a long-standing interest uh, in Indonesia ever since I was a student at the ANU in Canberra in the early 1970s. Um, so I'm delighted to be here today for this important seminar. We have two distinguished speakers, both from the Netherlands. Uh, Peter Drugleva, uh, as Paul Clark said, published a book. I think it came out in Dutch a few years ago. And, yes. and the English version is, um, uh, has just emerged. The book's called Active Free Choice, Decolonization, and a Right of Determination <coughs> in West Papua. And uh, Peter Druglever will be followed by Albert Kirsten, uh, professor of diplomatic history at the University of Leiden, who's written extensively uh, on a range of subjects uh, relating to Dutch foreign policy, including, I think, Dutch-American relations. Uh, so let's start with Peter Druglever, and then uh, we'll move on. <coughs> Thank you, Professor Paul. Um, well, it will, my task uh, to, just to make an opening to say a bit, to introduce the subject of uh, Papuan history and self-determination. I must say now that you have learned this will improve my condition, yes. <laughs> But I hope at least that the phone works. It doesn't. And now? You won't need it. <laughs> it still is not working. No. But even without the phone, it must be possible to be understood in, in a, a, a room like this. But that's not the case. Yes? Okay, well, I continue now. And if something goes wrong, please say so. Um, <coughs> Papuans, ladies and gentlemen, is the name of the population of the eastern parts of the Indonesian archipelago. The territory is successfully known under the names of Netherlands New Guinea, West Mirian, and Mirian Jaya. And nowadays it is known as the Indonesian province of Papua. Actually, it is part of the Melanesian world, both in physical appearance and human culture. The borderline runs somewhere in physical appearance and in human culture. The borderline runs somewhere east of Almahera. From that point on, on uh, uh, the population changes suddenly. One is leaving the Malay world and is entering into a new one that stretches far to the Pacific. It is aptly described by Wallace, the British um, biologist who visited these islands in the uh, middle of the 19th century. Uh, the difference there he met for the first time the Papuans in their own surroundings. The difference with what he had seen before was striking. In less than five minutes, so told, he was convinced of the fact that Malays and Papuans belonged to different, uh, fully different uh, marked races of the Duke of the Earth. Had I been blind, he said, I could have been certain that these islanders were not Malays. In the loud, rapid, eager tones, the incessant motion, the intense vital activity manifested in speech and action are very, the very antipodes of the quiet, unimpulsive, unanimated Malay. Wallace also observed that his Malay and Moroccan shipmates seemed quite scandalized at such unprecedented um, bad manners. That's uh, a habit that you can still uh, remark in the approach of uh, Indonesian uh, present in the territory. During his further trips through New Guinean waters, he got ample opportunity to consolidate 
feeds first impressions. At that time, so middle 19th century, the territory had been hardly touched by the Western world. According to the rules of the game, it belonged to the Dutch. Wallace appreciated their presence as some guiding hand on the fringes of human existence. They were there, they were there not, but someday you saw some kind uh, effects of, 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 of but some rules they had set. It was to, just in his days, the first missionaries were settled down in the area. It was to take 40 more years before a regular administration was set up with colonial outposts in Marokwani, Fakfak and Marauken. Still more 40 years later, on the eve of the Second World War, a new civilization was gradually taking shape, radiating from Christian enclaves along the coasts, where the young had learned to read and write and to look outside the limits of tribal life. Yet, then too, most Papuans still lived their own old lives. For them, the process of incorporation into the modern world had hardly begun. Elsewhere in Indonesia, that process had started up many decades before. To men, the colonial state, promising young men from the native elites received a professional training and were put to work in various positions and places in the vast colonial domains. In doing so, they transgressed the boundaries of their previous native lands and learned to know the wider colony as their country. So a new identity was developed, uh, which led to the sprouting of nationalist movements everywhere. In Indonesia, these found their focal point in the Sumpah Kamura, adopted at the youth, the Indonesian the youth of the younger, adopted at the Youth Congress held in Batavia in October 1928. Here, the concept of new nation was provided with the symbols of the national oath, a flag and an anthem. Um, and the acceptance of a common language. It were the symbols of the new Indonesia that was to reach independence in the second half of the 40s. That nationalism, however, did not spread equally over the whole of the archipelago. Its creation had mainly been the work of the Japanese Minangkabau elites that had delivered the Kapalas colonial state. Most uh, uh, local and ethnic groups had only followed at a distance and the Papuans had been left out nearly completely. As a consequence, the Papuans had missed the nationalist vote. None of them was present at the youth conference of 1928 and all that went with it. Even so, it is questionable if they would have joined it, seeing the cultural distance between them and the rest of Indonesia. So far, so good, but the matter became acute very soon at the end of the Second World War. The Japanese conquest of the Netherlands Indies had been a big push in the back for the national movement. In the last days of the occupation, a committee of Indonesian nationalists was called together to decide on the extent and the institutions of the state they had in mind. There, they opted for the national state, covering the territory of the Netherlands Indies as a whole, and at least. Today recognized that no Papua was present at the meeting, and that these were different in many respects from themselves, it was nevertheless claimed that they, too, uh, had to uh, join them, had to accept Indonesian citizens, and even if they had, did not feel like that at the moment, they had to, could be educated to that point in due time. This position was the starting point for a discussion with the Dutch, who gradually had to give in to the wishes of the Indonesian counterparts. Uh, the Dutch based their approach upon the principle of self-determination. They hoped it would have become, uh, let's say, uh, accepted thing uh, by the, among many other things, by the Charter of the United Nations that was accepted in 1945. So it was a good point of departure. They hoped it would give them some leeway, both in showing down, down 
the process, uh, in slowing down the processes of devolution and in taking care of the diversity of the population of the archipelago. These pressed their opponents to accept the principle of an Indonesian federal state, which was accepted by them in the end at the Roundtable Conference of 1949. The Indonesian Federation was duly installed, but was to last longer than a few, not longer than a few months when it was replaced by an Indonesian unitary state. So it was not a workable device. At these events, Roosevelt, the position of the Papuans, the federal concept had been figured out for them too, but they had even been placed somewhat further apart. Uh, for them, a further term of Bush administration was deemed best, at least. Therefore, they had been excluded from the transfer of 49 under strong Indonesian protests. The matter was not really settled then, uh, and the status of the territory had to be decided in the first year of independence. The downfall of the federal system, together with the bloody civil war in the Moluccas, brought the process to a standstill. The Indonesians now just asked nothing less than a handover from Papuan territory. The Dutch refused uh, uh, for a, a number of arguments, uh, uh, but self-determination was in front to more. Essentially, for the Dutch, New Guinea was becoming a model and to a certain degree also uh, a matter of not only of morality, but of prestige as well, and there's always a dangerous thing in international uh, politics and needs pop up. That round table conference then uh, marked uh, the beginning of a 12 years uh, uh, period, a period of 12 years of conflict on the future of New Guinea. It stimulated the Dutch to start series of development programs for the country. These were essentially the same as those applied in the Indies before 1942, but this time more decidedly based on the principle of self-determination. Thus, they let open the possibility of a Papuan option for Indonesia from the beginning to the end, but within a changing perspective. During the first years of the episode, the development of New Guinea was still seen as a long-term affair. On a practical level, relations between Indonesia and the Netherlands were still acceptable. These yet these deteriorated uh, step by step, leading to increased pressure upon the remaining Dutch interests in Indonesia. From 1958 on, <coughs> President Sukarno and his foreign minister Subandrio saw fit to exploit the Cold War to this end. And, uh, um, New, uh, to incite the Soviet Union and the uh, United States to provide them with modern armaments. They did so in competition. After a couple of years, Indonesia was in possession as of military might that had the capability to beat the Dutch. Actually, that military development was part of a broader phenomenon. The Cold War was fought out in ideological terms too, in which European colonialism was an easy target for the two protagonists. As a result, the Cold War accelerated the process, uh, in matters of theory, the process of decolonization all over the world, and the United Nations played a crucial role in it. In 1916, the World Organization accepted a resolution initiated by the Russians that declared all colonialism an evil that had to be swept from the surface of the earth as soon as possible. The quality of the administration and the capabilities of the population for self-determination no longer were acceptable as preconditions for independence. In doing so, the UN uh, not only weakened the position of the Dutch, but that from the other European colonial powers as well, and it led to the uh, big wave of decolonization later in the 60s and the 70s. From that time on, in New Guinea, the Dutch sought refuge in a flight forwards. 
the existing development programs were split up. Uh, more attention was paid to the training of the Papua elite, increasing numbers entered the lower and middle ranks. Region councils were installed. This gave a direct say in local affairs. In April 1961, uh, New Guinea Council was uh, installed that gave the population a say in the running of the affairs of the territory as a whole. It was the it stimulated uh, political activity, activity uh, among the populace, uh, and they started to organize uh, political parties of their own, and they participated and followed the debates uh, uh, on the progress and the changes in the national political and internal position. To the Papua elite, it offered many opportunities to take um, uh, initiatives of their own. Later in the year, 61, they created a national committee that opted for a national flag and altar and other tokens of national root. It was a neat repetition of the Sumitapamura of their Indonesian uncles of 28. This time, however, not directed towards the formation of the Indonesian state, but one of the Papuans themselves. In its international policies, the Netherlands played the cards of the UN, <coughs> trying to solicit the organization uh, to uh, take direct, direct say in the administration of the Papua's. It was an endeavor uh, to surpass Indonesia in the fight against colonialism. Apparently, so the proposal ran. Apparently, it was to demonstrate that the Dutch were working for the sake of self-elimination of the Papuans, and the Indonesians were sticking stubbornly to the proposition that they were already theirs. So, no principle. It was Indonesia, not the Dutch, that were the colonialists. That, Lutz plan, as it was called, uh, might have been a brilliant idea, but politically, uh, and that was very bad for a political proposal. Politically, it did not work out very well. The Dutch minister failed to collect the votes he needed for the acceptance of his plan, not at least by the subterraneous but persistent um, uh, opposition from the United Nations. From the United States, sorry. The result was an invitation of the Secretary General of the United Nations to the disputants to resume their discussions on the fate of the Papuans, this time under supervision of a third party that was to become uh, the United States. In the light of the Indonesian conditions, uh, a acceptance uh, could only mean acceptance of the Indonesian claims. Virtually, the Dutch cabinet agreed. It gave rise to new negotiations that took place under the increasingly grim condition of threatening war and continuing US pressure. On 5 August 62, the New York Agreement was signed, which provided for the transfer of the administration to the UN as a first step to an Indonesian takeover. The only concession to the Dutch was the option of an active choice for the Papuans in 69. The act had to be carried out uh, by the Indonesians themselves through under a weekly defined supervision from the United Nations. For the Dutch, there was no other role to play than to pay for half of the expenses. It was a mere failure of their policies for self-determination in the previous 12 years. For most Papuans too, it was a bitter pill to swallow. It reached them, the decision, at the moment that new horizons were opening up of the future as an independent state, possibly linked together with the rest of the Papuan lands in the Melanesian Union. It led to heated discussions among themselves. These took place in the spirit of fervent nationalism and the possibility of declaring independence on their own initiative was discussed seriously. It was also put on the agenda of the New Guinea Council, most fervently so, 
by the Bida, a member of the Movement. He was a highly respected member of the Council, who had shown himself clearly aware of the need of each nation with their big Indonesian neighbor. Now, with the Indonesian troops at their doorstep, he saw that time had come for the Papuans to speak for themselves. They had a choice between two options only. <coughs> One was a free and sovereign West Papua, the offer to become a colony of Indonesia. The feeling was widely shared by his fellow countrymen. Yet, he made Peter out for lack of conviction that it would be possible to make a stand upon the assistance of the Dutch. The Papua members of the Dubini councils accepted the New Yorker Union with the smallest possible majority. They decided to wait for the free choice of 69. So, so far, <coughs> on the way up to the effect of, uh, to the transfer of the territory. And I think it's time now to say a word on the agreement of New York itself, what it meant, what it guaranteed for the Papuans. Well, it essentially, it regulated two things. The first of it was a retreat of the Dutch and the entrance of the Indonesians under the supervision of a handful of civil administrators chosen from various countries supported by a force of 1200 Pakistani soldiers. Their main task was to guarantee the safety and civil liberties of the Papua inhabitants. The second task was to make preparations for the act of free choice. That first task had to be carried out soon enough. The formal transfer of the temple of the territory to the United Nations took place on 1 October 62 weeks after the final discussions in the New Guinea Council. <coughs> the, then the UN administrator entered the troops locked in and Indonesian units followed suit. The latter took over rapidly and left hardly room for the UN people to accomplish their tasks up to the standards set in the agreement. The incoming Indonesian soldiers behaved as inimical occupants and the first killings took place already a month later. Papua students were intimidated and put in prison. The Indonesians started a campaign against the plebiscite, um, prominent with the act of free choice. Prominent, Pap with the act of free choice. prominent Papuans were sent in groups to Java where they were put under pressure and intimidated and were pressed to publish declaration in which they announced that they had no need for self-determination anymore, as they were now happily united within the big Indonesian family at last. It all happened under the eyes of the UN administrator, the Persian um, diplomat Abu Abdul, in his official reports. He preferred to look askance. In his reports to the UN headquarters, Rumors on crude behavior and systematic plundering by Indonesian officials were discarded lightly. These were part of Indonesian customs, so he said, practiced in the country too, so it was nothing to worry about. Thus, uh, Abdul, in his official reports, he left the country in 1 May 63 when the takeover was completed. And so that part of the UN part was, would be regarded as ended successfully. Uh, on paper. Under the new rulers, for the Papuans, all bad dreams now came true and years of suppression followed. Indonesian administration was marked by suspicion towards the members of the Papua elite. Of the quite reason, so I think. Political parties were disbanded and political life came to a standstill. All modern facilities crumbled away and they had to learn to live as citizens of the third rank in an impoverished and badly managed country. Those who dared to speak for themselves were beaten, jailed or killed. When the Indonesian foreign minister Adam Malik visited the country in 1966, he was shocked by the arrogance among the rulers and the depression among the ruled devout men. Right? Let's hear from this 
Lasso, the prospects for a real act of rejoice were poor. The anti-plebiscite campaigns continued and President Sukarno left no opportunity unused to stress the futility of such an event. However, things changed with the rise to power of Suharto after the present takeover of 65. Indonesian economy was in ruins and the country dire needed foreign aid and investments. To build up a reputation of credibility, a successfully <coughs> implemented act of choice would be a big asset. It was a wish shared by most Western countries. So Indonesia and the international community shared a mutual interest in a good show of the act of free choice. When time had come to make the first preparations, Suharto publicly declared that an act of uh, free choice would take place in due time, and that it was now an, in, so it was an Indonesian agenda again. The only condition he made was that he wanted to be sure that the result would be in uh, favor of Indonesia. It was a risk that was widely understood and accepted. In 1969, so, that act of free choice was duly held, and the outcome was fully to the liking of the Indonesian president. A hard-pressed group of 1,025 selected electors voted unanimously for Indonesia. In this outcome, the role of the UN representative had been quite lamentable. Already a year before, in August 1968, this Bolivian diplomat was appointed as a representative of the United Nations for Western Union. It was his task to see to it that the act of free choice uh, be held according to international practice as was laid down in the New York Agreement. Apparently, he was out for a good start. He spent his first months in New York with reading at the files and discussing the underlying problems. Uh, he had listened carefully to them, to these, and in his first months in office, he kept talking that he wanted to be sure that completely free elections be held and that he would rather resign than be directing a farce. With such phrases, he caused panic uh, in the U.S. embassies where he went. That remained so in the first months after his arrival in Indonesia. Upon his return uh, from his first trip to New Guinea, where he had been overwhelmed by Papuan complaints on their miserable position and the British Indonesian approach, uh, he shocked the Indonesian officials in Jakarta uh, by simply stating that Parliament had the right to vote against Indonesia if they wished so. For his Indonesian counterparts, that was the sign that time had come to keep a tight rein on him. The generals Ali Murtopo and Sarko Eddy, both close friends of the president, did so by harsh measures and threats to harsh populations in the population. In the months preceding the act of free choice, the number of troops on the island increased to 60,000, and many thousands of Papuans suspected of unwanted political sympathies were put in jail. It was the task of the diplomat Sugabo Tomlunagoro to show the UN representative the limitations of his position and to see to it that he did not exceed them. After all, his tasks were only to advise, to assist, and to participate in the act of free choice. The preparations and the carrying out was Indonesia's job. And so it went, the Indonesia now defines a complicated system of arrangements <coughs> with councils, uh, 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 Directing councils in the eight Kabupaten of the territory, expanding things with additional voters, and so on, all just simple uh, appointed. So, in the end, he has uh, 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 a group of the, those 1025 or 26, but it's not important, uh, were uh, uh, appointed. Uh, 
you must say that these uh, were all of them uh, simple people and uh, that only very few people of the, uh, uh, the, the Padua elite uh, um, from the Dutch period were among them as the density of the population was called this point of departure. Uh, uh, many votes were reserved for, reserved for the population of the interior, the rather densely populated interior, that had, uh, had hardly been in contact with the outer, outside world at all, and the coastal uh, shores, uh, the shores that were less densely populated, but less, much more developed, had a less, less, much less lower say in the thing. So uh, here, the true one man, one vote system would have to turn itself against uh, the Padua aspirations, but it was not very big, a big problem for uh, even those voters had hardly a possibility to say what they did like. They were kept in custody for a month in their eight different uh, capitals. During which time they were cuddled with small favors and intimidated with uh, various threats for themselves and the families uh, if they did not comply with the wishes of Indonesia. The summit of the operation was a round of sessions in all eight capitals where the local electors were brought together and asked to read a short and mainly formally formulated statement in which they declared their aversion from the idea of having a free choice at all and their wish to stay forever within the bosom of the modern Indonesia. They did so in front of a group of grandees from Jakarta and the provincial administration, accompanied by some members of the United Nations and representatives of the Karf diplomatie in Jakarta. During the whole operation, Artisans was consulted regularly but his arguments for real elections and freedom of speech, especially in the more developed coastal areas and cities, were rejected out of hand. On the whole, the procedures were dictated completely by the Indonesians. Moreover, he was kept poorly on point on what progress had been made in the field. Advice came to money, as was the case with assistance and participation. Even observation proved difficult, as he and his small staff was completely dependent upon this for transport and, 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 and all that that gave it from uh, and trans even for translation, for he had now uh, only one uh, translator in their midst at that in the last stage. Uh, so they were fully dependent upon Indonesia uh, who could uh, handle them as they wished. Uh, moreover, uh, Artisans was only half-hearted, uh, supported by his superiors in New York, who felt they could not accept an open rupture with Indonesia on the subject of the of choice. So, uh, Artis and his colleagues were just bullied around. When this proved to be a viable game, Sujarbo started to allow him small, some, some very small uh, successes, who could be sold by the luckless Bolivian, uh, as big successes to his bosses uh, in uh, New York. In the end, this dependence upon Indonesian counterparts was complete. That was true for the wider circle of diplomats in Jakarta too, Jakarta, Benet, and New York. Nobody was waiting for failure, so the Indonesians had it their way. <coughs> Since that active choice, uh, there has been uh, continuing repression and exclusion from the outer world. The Suharto regime stuck to a stiff course of forced indigenization and the rejection of all expressions of Padua identity. It led to armed resistance, which in its turn evoked hard, count, harsh countermeasures. The epoch was marked by random killing and waves of fugitives to Australian territory. The number of victims can be guessed only, but the most moderate estimates meant mentioned a figure of 100,000. By the end of the 80s, this all calmed down a bit, but essentially conditions did not alter. Most of the abilities had been kept hidden from the outside world by the policy of uh, exclusion. In this, they had been helped by the wish of most people in the Western world that had its stakes on the rising star of the Indonesian Republic. Well, 
under these conditions, developments in West New Guinea in 1998 came as a big surprise. In that year, in the closing days of the Suharto regime, out of the blue, parliaments proclaimed themselves loyal to the earlier uh, nationalism, showing the long forbidden flag and singing collectively their never forgotten anthem. They organized mass meetings and formulated their demands to the Indonesian government. They confirmed their adherence to their national rights and asked for a reprisal of the sadly mismanaged plebiscy of 69. They wanted to put history right, as the phrase rang. The result was that the Indonesian president, Abdurrahman Bahi, spent the first days of the new millennium among the Papuans, promising them greater freedom. Shortly after, upon invitation of the president, a small working staff around the governor of the province framed a proposal for a special economy. It was a far-reaching document which, if implemented, would have given a position of self-rule uh, uh, to the province in most domains, except defense and foreign affairs. Since then, the wheel of history has turned back considerable, but not to the point where it all started. Talks about greater autonomy are going on, too, pressure will be needed to bring the Indonesians to real concessions, if ever. However, there be the precarious position of Papua is back on the agenda again. Not everybody's agenda, I must say, but it deserves at least the attention of policymakers, lawyers, historians, and social scientists alike. Thank you very much. The Dutch are masters in making dikes, in trade, and international business. Their record as colonizers and decolonizers is disputed, to put it mildly. In the early 20th century, they developed perfect theories of, for transfer of power to the people of Indonesia, but they had great difficulty in implementing it after the Second World War. Why? First of all, because of imbalance between their perception of the international position and the real impact of the Netherlands in the international community. The Netherlands had been neutral since 1830 and had developed the methods not to get entangled in international conflicts. They regarded themselves as the second colonial power after Great Britain and therefore they supposed to be an international player. In practice, they stayed aloof, fostered international law as a basis for international relations, and they forget that international relations are defined by power and that an extended territory on the globe or economic importance in the end do not count. In 1945, the Dutch were surprised by the Indonesian Declaration of Independence of 70 August. They started a colonial war against them against the new states and were forced into negotiations for transfer of power by the United Nations and the United States in particular. At the transfer of sovereignty in December 1949, the Dutch handed over to the Indonesian government the whole of the former Netherlands East Indies minus West New Guinea and made the Indonesians, made the Indonesians believe that within a year an agreement on the future transfer would be reached. This did not happen. The Dutch kept the territory and the new international conflict was born. By the end of the 1950s, it was clear to the Dutch government that they couldn't keep new West New Guinea for themselves and that some gesture had to be made. The catchword was internationalization of the administration of the territory in order to keep it out of the hands of Indonesia. The so-called lunch plan failed in the United Nations General Assembly in December 1961 and the Dutch were in great trouble. The road to UN involvement was closed. Negotiations with Indonesia could not any longer be avoided. Washington was pushing for action and the Kennedy administration read the Dutch plan as a signal that the Dutch wanted to get rid of the last bastion in the Far East. 
Washington was eager to make, to make this come true. The Dutch government was very surprised about the American pushing. Seven months later, on, August, on 15 August 1962, Indonesia, the Netherlands and the United States signed the Treaty of New York on the transfer of sovereignty for West New Guinea from the Netherlands to Indonesia via an interim UN administration. Every party involved in that agreement had its own analysis of the situation. Indonesia's President Sukarno was of opinion that in, the that in 1950 the Dutch had, had cheated him and Indonesia by not fulfilling the promise of making an agreement on the transfer of New Guinea. His claim was that the Dutch should hand it over to Indonesia directly. He threatened to use force that after 1957 he had started a program of reinforcing the Indonesian army and navy by purchasing equipment in the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact countries. And this disturbed the military balance in favor of Indonesia against the Dutch. He also started the small-scale military actions against the island. Internationally, the Indonesian position was strengthened by the growing number of new UN third world countries. Internally, the Communist Party gained influence. The Dutch government saw itself as the legal owner of West New Guinea. This had been inscribed in the Constitution after 1956. Its political aim was to prepare the territory for autonomy, and it reported yearly to the UN Trust Commission since 1950. Direct transfer to Indonesia was no option because Indonesia has, according to the Dutch, violated several times the agreements of December 1949. Therefore, Jakarta was said to be an unreliable partner. The rising communist influence in Indonesia was also an argument against transfer or concessions to Sukarno. The Dutch government regarded the continuation of the Dutch administration as a contribution to the rest in the Cold War. Transfer to Indonesia would not result in a change of position of Indonesia in the Cold War of the Dutch analysis. On the contrary, it would stimulate Sukarno's appetite and increase the communist influence. Until 1962, Washington had taken a neutral stand in the conflict. It regarded the Netherlands as an important ally in Europe, but at the same time Indonesia was an important state in the Cold War in Southeast Asia, and offered the best opportunities for fighting communism. Washington acknowledged that communist influence in Indonesia was increasing, but it hoped that support to the armed forces of General Nasutino would moderate this influence. From 1958 onwards, it had increased economic and military aid to Jakarta. Its aim in the New Guinea conflict was to reach a peaceful solution between the parties. <coughs> in the end, and by the end of the Eisenhower administration, the State Department became aware that some American involvement was required to produce any solution. The incoming Kennedy administration was even more convinced of this necessity. It viewed the conflict around New Guinea as the key to fighting the communist threat in Southeast Asia. Therefore, the New Guinea conflict was high priority, but it was very difficult, not to say impossible, to devise a solution which could be acceptable to Jakarta and Tihei. Sukarno took his position that only direct and unconditional transfer was acceptable and that he would only come to the negotiating table to discuss the method of transfer, not the principle. The Dutch didn't want to negotiate directly with Jakarta. Their foreign minister, Joseph Luntz, had bad memories of direct bilateral negotiations with Indonesia since 1956 because on that occasion in his opinion, the Indonesian delegation had launched a mischievous anti-Dutch campaign full of lies in order to hand the Black Peter for the failure to the Dutch. 
Lens, Lens didn't want to be maneuvered into that awkward position once more. The Dutch were prepared to talk about transfer, preferably to the UN, on condition that the right of self-determination of the Papua was guaranteed. It was not an easy task for Washington to convince both parties to start negotiations because Jakarta and The Hague regarded their position as most forthcoming to the other party. In Washington itself, there was a clear division, division of opinions. To the National Security Advisor and his staff, it was a simple issue. The Dutch were the obstacle to the transfer of rescue Kenny to Indonesia. Their importance in Southeast Asia was almost zero, and they had caused a lot of trouble in the, re in the recent past. The Dutch government used, according to the National Security Advisor, the wrong arguments for its opposition to transfer. Therefore, it was the best to force the Dutch into ending their administration of the territory and make them hand it over to Sukarno. This harsh and humiliating line of policy would intensify the anti-American feelings in the Netherlands, but this would change in due time, was their opinion. This cynical attitude was not shared by the State Department. Although traditionally the European and Far Eastern divisions had disagreed on the substance of the US policy towards Indonesia, now they agreed that action was required, the time to add the Dutch present in New, in New Guinea had come. The core issue was how to do it. The European section was of opinion that pressuring the Dutch might work, but the Far Eastern Department didn't share this view. According to them, the Dutch were such stubborn, their foreign minister Lenz had a long reputation of inflexibility in this issue. His habit to lecture the American administration on its wrongdoings to, to the loyal Dutch ally in Southeast Asia since 1945, and the weakness of the American analysis of the situation did not increase his popularity at, st at the State Department in particular not with the new Assistant Secretary of State for the Far East, the experienced diplomat and grand old man Avril Harriman. Secretary of State in Basque usually followed the advice of the European Department. So did President Kennedy, despite all conflicting views, policy makers in the White House and State agreed on the urgency and the need to intervene in order to avoid a direct military confrontation between the Indonesians and the Dutch. Foreign Minister Lenz was stubborn indeed, but he was not a fool. Due to the disintegration of the domestic support for his policies and an internal divide within the government, he was aware that he could not reject negotiations on the conflict and that Indonesia had to participate. So he convinced the cabinet and the parliament that negotiations in the presence of a third party were the best method to bypass Indonesian manipulations and to guarantee the Papua right to self-determination. Washington wasn't really keen for this third party approach, but in the end it accepted it although it did not have much appetite to act as the third party. It took a greater effort to get Sukarno to the negotiating table. The American ambassador in Jakarta, Howard Jones, had invested much energy into a good relationship with the Indonesian president, and he was successful in creating a personal bond with him. Despite his good relationship, he could not convince Sukarno that he should agree to negotiations that the American government would make sure that the conflict would be solved. So it was time for more convincing fireworks. Attorney General Robert Kennedy, the president's brother and trustee, would leave Washington soon for a trip to the southeast. It was a perfect occasion to put more pressure on Sukarno. Armed with very detailed instructions, he started his talks with the Indonesian president, and at the very last moment, 
is to see that in convincing him that starting preliminary negotiations with the Netherlands without preconditions was the best option. This opened a window of opportunities to bring peaceful solution to come true. Now it was time for Washington to make some drastic steps to bring the peace. First of all, he decided not to hide away from its responsibility and to, and to take charge of the situation. Officially, the secret negotiations would be held in the UN umbrella. However, the, U the UN, UN representative was an outstanding American diplomat, Alfred Franklin. Not a personality just to chair the secret meetings, although on paper this was his task. UN possibilities to put pressure on the parties was rather limited. They had to make them believe that a peaceful solution was the best, of the, was the best in their interest. Indonesia would get <coughs> what it thought it should have been given already in 1949. The Dutch would be freed from a very nasty problem which they would not solve, could not solve on their own and certainly it was impossible to keep New Guinea out of the Indonesian hands for any longer. This general approach, profits for all, had to be explained very carefully to both parties because they might run away from the negotiations. Sukarno had the alternative of war, the Dutch played the moral card of self-determination. A war was the worst, the worst Washington could get because then the Dutch would go to the, would completely attack to the Security Council and the Soviet veto was likely and a solution out of reach. The first phase of the secret talks lasted just a few days. It was evident that the Indonesian delegation had a very limited mandate, on purpose because Sukarno came to the conclusion that the Dutch delegation was not offering New Guinea on a silver plate and did stick to the implementation of the principle of self-determination. Negotiations were interrupted and due to the unreliable information from Dutch sources, Sukarno expected the fall of the Dutch government and its replacement by a much more forthcoming new cabinet. <coughs> Shortly after the talks had been interrupted, Bunker presented his own proposal. The Dutch would transfer New Guinea to the United Nations and after a period of six months, the UN administration of the area would be transferred to Indonesia. Later, in 1996, the population would get the opportunity to implement its right of self-determination. These proposals reflected the harsh line of thinking in the State Department and the White House. More pressure on the Dutch was seen as the easiest way to replace solution and with some face-saving for the Dutch. The Dutch were furious because in their perception the right of self-determination had to be implemented before the end of the UN administration and not after it. The Papuas wouldn't have a free choice under Indonesian administration was their opinion. To the Dutch it was a full corruption of the right of self-determination and the Dutch refused to discuss the bunker plan. In the media, the Dutch government opened fire on the bunker plan, although officially nobody knew its content. This UN-Dutch guerrilla ended in May 1962. In the end, the Dutch government and parliament accepted the bunker plan as a basis for negotiations. Early June, the, negoci the negotiations were resumed in Williamsburg in Virginia. The Williamsburg preliminary talks of June 1962 were a full State Department operation, which was monitored by the National Security Council staff very closely. State and the National Security Council continued their discussion of the best strategy to reach agreement on the short term. It was necessary because Sukairo had threatened that he would launch a full-scale attack on West New Guinea on 17 August. 
in Lesia's Independence Day unless an agreement had been signed by that time. Ambassador Jones played an important role in convincing Sukarno that a peaceful solution instead of a full-scale attack on Western Guinea was the best solution for all parties. Once the negotiations had restarted, the Dutch delegation had proven that the Bunker Plan was indeed the basis for negotiations. Bunker gave clear direction to the talks and followed his own agenda. Bunker's staff sent half-daily reports to the State Department. Bob Comer of National Security Council was the anchorman for the White House. He reported on a daily basis to, his national, to the National Security Advisor that President Kennedy was informed of every bottleneck in the negotiations. This handling indicates the high priority for, for the issue in Washington once it was in the driving seat of this formally UN mediation effort. The UN umbrella was mere fiction. Bunker informed occasionally UN Secretary General Newton and his staff. In fact, New York waited for the result and started in the meantime preparations for the setup of a temp temporary UN administration. The negotiations were very smooth on the technical aspects of the transfer of administration. The bone of contention between the Dutch and the Indonesians was the right of self-determination. In the Bunker Plan, a period of six months when the administration was scheduled, but this did not converge with Zucarno's intentions. He had promised <coughs> the Indonesian people that the Indonesian flag would fly over Ilian Jaya before the end of 1962. To the Dutch, this was unacceptable. The Indonesian delegation of Foreign Minister Subandrio tried hard to shorten the UN interim administration and to bring the Indonesians in as soon as possible. There was much pressure on the Dutch delegation to make concessions in Williamsburg and in West New Guinea due to the continuous Indonesian infiltration. The Dutch main negotiator, Ambassador Van Rooyen, tried hard to keep the Dutch position. His mandate was restricted and a draft agreement required approval of the Dutch cabinet. At the heart of his mandate was the demand of the right of self-determination, that it has to be real and not a form of window dressing. To the Dutch government, it was a form in the flesh that the execution of this right to take place after the UN interim administration and during the Indonesian rule. In their view, a long UN interim administration and a one-man, one-vote system was vital, were vital elements. All this was unacceptable to the Indonesians. Bunker did his utmost to massage. Van Rooyen to, to massage Van Rooyen to more accommodation and real concessions. To Van Rooyen himself, reaching agreement with Indonesia was essential. He had opposed already the splitting off of New Guinea in 1949. A direct military confrontation over New Guinea had to be avoided in his opinion. Therefore, he worked closely with Bunker to bring this about. He agreed to an earlier start of the Indonesian participation in the interim administration of the territory and advised his government to adopt the one-man, one-fourth point. The negotiations almost broke down. According to Subandrio, the Dutch were dragging the talks. He told Robert Kennedy that he would return to Jakarta unless within two days the preliminary agreement had been reached. This triggered the White House into a red alert. Subandrio was invited to the White House for a private meeting with the President. In no certain terms, sorry, in no uncertain terms, the President explained to Subandrio that he understood that his return to Jakarta meant the end of the negotiations and that the choice for war did the Netherlands have been made. Doing so, Kennedy says, President Sukarno would lose an opportunity to show the world that he was capable to solve this difficult issue in a peaceful way. Therefore, 
If Indonesia did start a war over New Guinea, Washington would support a Dutch ally. So Baudrillo decided to stay and to continue the negotiation. The Dutch government was not pleased at all with the final draft agreement. In the end, he decided to sign it after a long cabinet debate. They did not expect that the Pabuas would have a fair chance to execute the right of self-determination. It was in the end the American involvement in the conflict which had brought a solution without war. It was probably the best result attainable at that time. My conclusion can be short. The Netherlands and Indonesia had taken irreconcilable positions in the conflict of the West UK. To both, it was a matter of principle, and the solution without violating these principles was out of reach. Only the US involvement did bring about a solution. Basically, the Dutch, and through them the Papuas, had to make concessions. The solution was not at all a balanced one. In fact, the self-determination in it was window-pressing. Nevertheless, it should be noted that from the American geopolitical point of view, the agreement of New York was a good deal. It ended a conflict which might be of advantage to the Soviet Union and its allies in the Cold War in the Far East. They expected that the relations with Indonesia would improve and that communist influence in the country would be reduced. It did not work out this way. Relations with the Netherlands were not handled in the long term. They were only sprayed for a very short time. The act of free choice for the Papuas had a very low priority and was sacrificed to other globally more important interests. Thank you.